This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, sending to you live Monday, October 31st. But uh, before we get to the show, just a friendly reminder that today is the last day of our crash sale. We've reduced the price of a subscription to Real Vision Essential to $99 per year, and a subscription to the Plus tier is just $400. Again, it ends today, so make sure to use that chance. But uh, let's get to the interview. Uh, we're going to ask the question today, what's next for energy? And I guess no one's better at answering that question than the green chicken. So it's a pleasure to have Mr. Doomberg with us. Good to see you. Andreas, great to be here. really appreciate the invitation and looking forward to a great discussion. Big fan of your work and uh, really it was a thrill when you reached out to, uh, to have us on. So looking forward to it. Me too, um, but uh, let's start with a short-term forecast. I saw that you tweeted that Joe Biden will be on stage in around 30 minutes with a message to the oil companies. What do you think he will say? Uh, so the reporting coming out is that Biden will insinuate that if uh, oil companies don't do more to bring down the price of gasoline at the pump, that he will uh, work with Congress to try to get a windfall profits tax uh, passed. Now, uh, we were joking a little bit before we went on the air that um, we view this as a um, as a consequence of the fact that there is a midterm election next Tuesday, and uh, the odds of such a thing coming to reality um, are very low. I think the market has mostly shrugged it off, um, such as the uh, nature of politics uh, the week ahead of a decisive election in the United States, as I'm sure you know. Um, watching the news from Europe, the U.S. is a hyper-polarized and very evenly divided country, and a few votes uh, in swing states can have disproportionate impact on who wields power in the country. And as we get uh, closer to the midterm elections, we anticipate uh, more and more headlines like these, uh, most of which I think as traders can be safely ignored. Now that we are talking about politics, uh, one of the things that have been of, of major importance to oil markets over the past couple of months is the drawdown of the SPR, so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. What do you make of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve on the other side of the midterms? Yeah, that's a very great question. You know, we've written a couple of pieces on the topic, um, and um, a lot of people don't realize that the, the drawdown that Biden has done, of course, is unprecedented. Most people know that. Um, he has um, committed to draw down 180 million barrels, almost a million barrels a day over the period of six months. But this comes on top of uh, mandated future oil sales that come out of Congress when legislation from years gone by uh, was passed. And this is a little nuance of American politics that energy traders should be aware of. Um, the, the whole game in Washington, D.C. is to score legislation, you know, to, to trick the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office's scoring of legislation. And uh, in 2015, Congress, um, a bipartisan, by the way, both parties are guilty of this, um, began to realize that they could mandate future sales from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves and the anticipated revenue from those sales 
would offset the spending on the CBL score. It's a gaming of the CBL score. And so there's actually like something like um, almost 200 million more barrels of oil to be sold from the SBR over and above 180 that Biden has uh, mandated. And so um, there's 30 million barrels in the next fiscal year. There's like, and all of these mandated sales are 10 years from, you know, eight to 10 years from where the bill was passed because they're just sort of um, snow plowing uh, future obligations to, to Congress uh, that they don't have to worry about today. And so in addition to the drawdown of the SBR, we're facing a wall of uh, congressionally mandated future sales uh, from the SBR uh, to, because of budgetary tricks uh, uh, from bills of yesteryear. And so the situation is actually uh, substantially worse than people realize. And, and as you mentioned, you know, in a post-election world, uh, when all those bullets are fired, um, the U.S. is going to be faced with a situation, a critical question, which is, will they spend the money to refill that SBR? And if so, at what price? And the whole world, you know, knows, knows this. Uh, the Saudis know it. OPEC Plus knows it. Um, and so it's a very, very fascinating situation and one that we're following very closely. If we look at the current reserve, um, I think about one third of the overall level has been uh, given to the market basically via this drawdown. But how low can we go? Uh, is there sort of a feasible uh, threshold to target uh, for the reserve level? So if we just do a sort of finger in the air analysis, you know, there's um, 400 million barrels left. The U.S. uses, I'm sorry, the world uses 100 million barrels a day of oil. Um, the U.S. is what it produces something like 12 million barrels a day of oil. So it just give you a sense of the numbers. Um, and in fact, I think these mandated sales are more like 260 or 270 million barrels uh, over and above what Biden has already done. Um, and so in reality, the sort of the true sellable reserves of the SBR is probably closer to 120 or 130 million barrels. You know, people can check our numbers, but it's directionally correct. Um, and then there's this question of um, the, the structural stability of the salt domes. Most people don't realize that the reserves are actually not kept in tanks. They're kept in these um, uh, salt domes that have been um, hollowed out using fresh water by engineers. And if you drain them, there's risk of uh, dome collapse and structural damage and so on. Um, and so it's a pretty risky endeavor. Um, it's never been tried before. It's totally unprecedented uh, in our piece. Um, called uh, past the salt, we, um, we we sort of gave some historical perspective. I think like the, for the first Gulf War, um, they were authorized to draw down as much as 30 million barrels, but ended up doing a fraction of that because the DOE at the time was more concerned about, you know, preserving this strategic asset. Um, that's long ago out the window. You know, um, once Congress converted the SPR into a, just another piggy bank to raid, um, it began us down this path and of course, uh, once you go down such paths, um, uh, taking another 180 million barrels uh, out of the reserves is just another political decision, which is uh, rather unfortunate, but it does leave the U.S. in a, you know, put it this way, if the SPR was strategically important to have, not having it must be a strategic weakness. Um, and so we shall see. But, um, you know, the rest of the world knows exactly what the U.S. is doing and why. Um, um, things have gotten disturbingly uh, personal between Biden and, and MBS. Um, the, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and um, we're entering into truly uncharted territories. And, and so we shall see. Our, our hope is post next Tuesday, after the midterms, uh, everything kind of simmers down a little bit and saner heads prevail and the political nature of the price of oil um, becomes less of an issue and, and perhaps the long-term uh, strategic interests of, of the West 
um, and be comes to the fore once again. Uh, politics, as you know, makes for uh, rather unfortunate decision making uh, under the gun of pressure. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, speaking of low inventories, um, it's been an ongoing story over the past, say, two, three, four months um, in diesel space as well. Um, we've seen how supply constraints, uh, in particular on the East Coast of, uh, of the US, has been uh, an ongoing topic for investors. Um, let's uh, provide your take on what's going on in diesel space. Is this something that's related to the SPR and in, in, um, in which case? Uh, so not really. In our view, um, what we're seeing with East Coast diesel crisis of supply and therefore, of course, a crisis of price is a combination of a logistics issue and a lack of refining in the US, um, mostly actually the former. Um, US refineries are operating at 94, 95% Uh, capacity is like historic type numbers. And of course, you know, given the the uh, spread between um, oil and, and the refined products like diesel, they're making um, historic levels of profitability. Uh, but in reality, the U.S. East Coast, um, because of a couple of peculiarities, one, um, they've been aggressively shutting down refineries uh, in the region. The, the U.S. Is, is divided into what are known as PADs, you know, a P-A-D-D. Uh, a, um, a legacy of the Second World War and the way that rationing was uh, was done um, by the federal government. And Pad One is is the Northeast, uh, covers much of the Atlantic seaboard. Um, Pad One uh, refineries in the, in that region have been shut down, but because of the Jones Act, which prohibits um, non-U.S. flagged, U.S. owned, U.S. Um, sailored ships from picking up product at one U.S. port and bringing it to another. Um, this is an act that is all 100 years old. Um, it is literally illegal since the U.S. actually doesn't own and flag and staff many ships for um, cargoes of, of refined products to go from the Gulf Coast, where the majority of the U.S. refineries exist, uh, and deliver that to the Northeast. And of course, the Northeast has all kinds of environmental regulations against pipelines and so on and so on. And so um, ultimately, we're... we're heading into crisis mode here where heating oil, which is basically just dyed diesel, it's all the same uh, refined product, um, is in very short supply as we head into winter. And then again, much like Europe, um, the Northeast is praying for a relatively mild winter because um, you know, if, if, if we happen to get a, a prolonged cold snap, which we hope we don't, um, there could be big trouble in the Northeast. And, and you know, um, heating oil, competes, it's essentially diesel, and diesel is the lifeblood of the modern supply chains, and so it, it's all very interconnected, but it, it, is, it is a product of predominantly logistics and peculiarities of U.S. Uh, marine laws. Um, the Jones Act in particular is, is an artifact of, of a century gone by and should be repealed. Uh, when it comes to temperatures, I can uh, guarantee you that I've never experienced a week like this in Copenhagen, Denmark. I've been walking around in the t-shirt over the past couple of days, uh, which is very, very unusual for this time of the year. Uh, so fingers crossed for warm weather in the northeastern part of the U.S. as well. Um, we spoke uh, a little bit about the sense of urgency on this topic before we went on air, Dunberg. Uh, I told you that my impression from Europe is that the sense of urgency is gone due to the uh, hotter temperatures temperatures than, uh, than seasonally usual. Um, but what about the sense of urgency in the northeastern part of the U.S.? Is this a topic high on the agenda? 
Uh, it is right now because it is a little early for um, heating oil to be sort of in peak demand in the Northeast, especially in the past, say, half a dozen years as um, as weather has been uh, sort of historically rather warm. Uh, we haven't really had a harsh winter uh, in, in the U.S. Um, now. Um, there's been very deep cold snaps and the grid has uh, teetered uh, in the Northeast uh, once or twice in the past few years, but by and large, um, uh, who knows, uh, climate change, pick your favorite explanation, but the weather has been warmer than, warmer than usual, which is kind of ironic, of course, if Western Europe is bailed out by, <laughs> by global warming um, as we head into uh, to, to the winter. Um, but yeah, in, in the US, um, it's, it's more of a crisis right now again, but you have to sort of try to separate the hyper-politicalization with the midterm election coming up. And so it's difficult to say, you know, of course the Republicans are making a disproportionately perhaps big deal about it. Um, Democrats are trying to talk it down. I think, you know, once the smoke clears after next week, uh, we'll be able to get a better sense on the ground. But to your point, as we were talking about before we were on the air, um, as happy as we are that um, Europe is lucky enough to be experiencing an unseasonally warm late fall, um, a worst case scenario would be that the lesson that people draw from this crisis is that um, everything is okay and we could just go on uh, with life as usual. And I think we both agree uh, for Europe in particular, but perhaps the Northeast, um, you know, these are real serious situations. And um, if you don't get this right, I, I really enjoyed your tweet about the uh, relative inflation levels across different countries in Europe with Spain being um, sort of the least inflationary of the major countries. And, and your explanation is one we agree completely on. You know, they, they are both blessed with obviously a better climate, but also they seem to have gotten their energy policy correctly. They have lots of LNG terminals. And, and so um, it's not a surprise to us that Spain is doing better. Um, the worst case scenario would be that um, luck is misconstrued as, uh, as intelligence. And, um, and then we end up with say a cold back half of the winter or a even more challenging 2023 and we've learned nothing, and then we just uh, go right back to the same crisis that we are hopefully, knock on wood, uh, looking to be avoiding here pretty soon. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's have a look at the current storage levels in uh, in Europe, uh, because that's been one of the key topics over the past couple of weeks here in Europe, uh, with falling natural gas prices as a consequence of this queue of LNG ships outside of uh, the Spanish shore and uh, a couple of other countries in, in Europe. Um, I think you and I agree that this is a short-term story because it is essentially linked to the chart that we can bring up on the screens with um, fill levels in various gas storages in Europe being very close to 100%. But if we look a bit further ahead, Dunberg, um, in terms of supply and um, in particular in natural gas space, what's your assessment of the flows heading into 2023? So if I look at this chart that you're showing, which is one that we've seen uh, often, and kudos to the um, European politicians who had the sense to um, outbid everyone else in the world and get as much natural gas as they could ahead of the winter. 
Um, that's a two-dimensional chart, and I think there needs to be a third dimension to it, which is the percent that the uh, each country has uh, in storage capability relative to their annual demand. So if I look at Austria on your chart, which is is you know what looks to be a by eyeball 90% full, um, they can store something like 74, 75% of their annual domestic needs in storage. Now, um, then much of that is of course contracted out, they're passed through, and and um, I'm sure they'll capture a healthy bid ask spread. Um, but Germany, for example, I think can store something like 23 or 24% of its of its uh, annual consumption. And so um, while the numbers look good and they're as good as they could be, because of course they couldn't scramble to get more storage capacity, although one could argue that looking at LNG carrier rates that the EU is actually paying LNG carriers to be floating storage to supplement uh, what they have on land, which might not be a bad idea and it's going to be expensive, um, but it will be um, additional molecules that uh, modelers had not anticipated um, heading into the winter. Um, and so um, they're basically, you know, creating um, transient storage options by having this flotilla of LNG carriers parked up off the coast of Spain, uh, waiting to unload, which is again, um, not a bad strategy. Uh, congratulations to the planners in the EU for getting that done. Um, the, the, the unfortunate part of this story, of course, is um, assuming we get a, a mild winter um, and the EU, um, you know, the main countries in the EU um, avoid the worst possible scenarios. Um, they get to do it all over again next year, except much of the storage that's in place today was uh, put there through the physical pipelines that have now been destroyed, um, uh, connecting Russia to Germany directly, i.e. Nord Stream 1 and at least one of the pipelines of Nord Stream 2. Um, and so um, the ability to repeat this for next winter, which is probably the last winter of crisis, you know, we. If you look at futures pricing, by the time we get to 2024, 2025, um, the world will be a very different place. The natural gas market will be far more efficient and the crisis will have been largely uh, abated and behind the leaders of Europe. And that would be a very interesting time to look at Europe as a potential investment. Um, um, but you know, uh, next winter will be a very interesting challenge. And again, um, the fact that it's warm and uh, the fact that um, the gas is not needed for, you know, Heating, uh, heating of homes um, is a very positive thing, although at least some of the, um, the demand destruction has come from industry, which is going to be a bit of a challenge for uh, recessionary measurements like GDP and, and industrial activity. Um, and so it remains to be seen whether there are second and third order impacts, but the primary crisis as we stand here on Halloween, um, the, the worst case scenarios are becoming less and less likely. Uh, which is a, a unabashedly good thing. Uh, yeah, and I, I can add, if you look at uh, a long time series history in Europe and add the GDP on, on one axis and the energy consumption on another axis, you get a correlation of close to one, right? If the energy consumption is down, it's because the economic activity is down. Energy runs through the veins of right about every corner of an economy. But I wanted to ask you about the potential for Europe to um, gain flows from the LNG market into next year. Uh, we know that the pipelines from Russia are basically shut except for a few um, cubic meters uh, flowing through Ukraine and um, and the eastern part of, of Europe, but uh, else the flow is basically zero from Russia now and Russian flows made up in between, I guess, 40 and 50% of, of European flows on any given day in 2021. 
is it possible to replace all of that gas via the LNG market? And what would the global ramifications be of such a scenario? So I'd have to run the numbers. Um, there's a lot of you know floating uh, import terminal projects and the speed with which Europe is is building its import capacity um, would be the gating factor in such an analysis in our view. Uh, but the natural gas market is a fascinating one to study because you see these wild price swings um, because literally unlike coal or even oil it's so transient like you have either have to store it or burn it it's very difficult to store it's expensive to store um, whereas coal you can just pile it up right which is why in fact coal is is more valuable on an energy content basis today than even oil which is really a remarkable first time in history something we've written about our uh, earlier pieces um and so um for example if you just take the us um there's uh you know in western texas um at the waha hub uh, last just last week with Europe you know still paying thirty dollars per million BTU and and Asia paying a couple of dollars less than that um, price for natural gas in Western Texas at the Waha hub traded negative because of a pipeline shutdown and and you know in that region natural gas is produced um, as a byproduct of oil production it's called associated gas and and um, the desperate need to produce more oil at at the um, at the strong, uh, you know, with the strong support of the U.S. Uh, government as they head into the midterms, um, we had this abundance of natural gas that they literally couldn't get rid of. And with with natural gas trading at thirty dollars in Europe, it traded for I think it closed on uh, October twenty sixth at something like minus seventy cents per million BTU. Um, just shows you how how wild and inelastic the price of natural gas can be. And in fact, we wrote a piece all the way back in June of twenty twenty one where we we highlighted that in the great freeze of texas in the winter of 2020 2021 um, the price of natural gas went totally bananas in the u.s at these uh regional hubs and uh, at one hub the ogp hub it traded for 1193 dollars per million btu on a spot basis um and today of course you know natural gas was trading for four or five dollars um by the way at at, at twelve hundred dollars per million btu that's like an oil barrel equivalent price of seven thousand dollars um, when you need natural gas, you'll pay anything for it. And when you have too much of it, you'll pay people to take it away from you. And the volatility of natural gas swamps that of oil, which swamps that of coal, um, because it's basically very difficult to handle. And so um, to your question about LNG in Europe next year, um, for the right price um, and with the right levels of, um, of ingenuity around moving this stuff around and developing new storage capacities, um, sure, um, I suppose it's theoretically possible. The downstream consequence of that would be the rest of the world, which relies on LNG, like many developing nations in Pakistan and Bangladesh and, and others come to mind, uh, will have to go without. Um, and so there is a consequence, which is the exportation of inflation to the developing world. Uh, because Europe is a wealthy region, um, it can set a very high clearing price to get the incremental molecules that it needs. And that's what it did this year. And I, I suspect um, uh, that's what that's what will happen next year as well. We've been talking a lot about the supply side, but let's have a look at the demand side as well. Uh, we hosted Shabam Garg last week at the Real Vision platform to talk about long-term demand for oil. I wanted to play a soundbite for you, Dunberg, from that discussion um, in relation to this long-term view on, um, on oil demand. So let's listen to the soundbite and get back to that discussion. What we mean by the S-curve is, is when somebody moves from riding a bicycle to then driving a motorbike to then moving or driving a vehicle, your energy petroleum consumption goes up exponentially. 
because it went from zero to some number. And when you put a couple billion people on that part of the S-curve, the demand growth can be just extreme. Um, so countries like India, Vietnam, the Philippines, Nigeria, you know, think about these countries with huge populations, uh, huge demand. They see what America has. That's what they want. So the demand is, is not expected to go down anytime soon. If you look back, demand goes up roughly 1% per year, always. And when there are drawdowns, like a recession or a COVID event, demand will come back, not just to its level where it was, it will regain that growth because a lot of things are happening behind the scenes, uh, people purchasing vehicles, uh, more roads being built, more transportation equipment, more ships, more planes, more airports. The entire interview with Shivam Garj is already available at the Real Vision platform for Essential Plus and Pro subscribers. But back to you, Duberg. Um, this is kind of a message on uh, the long-term prospects for oil demand. First of all, do you concur with his view that the oil demand will basically continue to rise exponentially in developing in the developing world over the coming uh, years? And secondly, how does that rhyme with the supply outlook? So first of all, we agree. I agree completely with that clip uh, and everything that he said. In fact, we're publishing a piece tomorrow called Exit Stage Left, where we are making the prediction um, that um, the world is basically going to roll the dice on climate change. Uh, that is our view. Uh, anywhere where significant energy restrictions are implemented, um, political leaders are either swept away electorally or through violent revolutions. And uh, China is ignoring, you know, China's 30% of global CO2 emissions, and they're completely ignoring um, climate change. Uh, if anything, uh, President Xi in his, in his opening speech at the, at the latest party Congress was very clear that they will use the resources uh, that China has, i.e. coal, and um, they will not uh, toss out the old before they're ready to bring in the new, uh, which we took to mean that they will um, burn as much coal, consume as much oil and natural gas as they need to, to keep it going. Uh, India, same thing. Vietnam, same thing. Even in the U.S., Joe Biden's uh, consistent berating of the oil and gas sector to produce more to lower prices ahead of the midterms tells you that at the first sign of pain, um, most political leaders in the world are going to revert uh, back to primary energy sources that are the underpinning of their GDP. Like you said, the correlation is perfect, one. And so, yes, of course, um, to the extent that oil is accessible and you don't think that peak oil is a, is a real thing, um, the world certainly will continue to demand as much oil as can be economically produced. And we think um, by 2050, uh, we will be consuming more oil, more natural gas, and more coal than we are today. Um, and ultimately, whatever your opinion is on climate change, um, the world seems set to roll the dice, which we think, you know, as, as uh, analysts, it's important to just sort of predict what you think will happen and then let uh, investors decide what the consequences will be. Uh, but we think uh, ultimately the world is is going in that direction. Um, the pre the prime minister of the United Kingdom is not even going to COP 27 at least as of, as of this recording. Like it shows you how how far things have turned in just one year with just one energy crisis. Now imagine playing that four, three, four, five, six times more, uh, and even deeper. Um, you know the world will set a new record for coal consumption in 2022. Uh, we've had 27 COP meetings. We will have had 27 COP meetings after the uh, latest one in Egypt. Yeah. This is just as an axiom, as a, as a logical analysis starting point, I think the base case has to be that the demand and supply for oil will continue to grow, same with natural gas, same with coal.
We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But if we look at the supply side, say over the next three, four, five years, and pair that with a growing demand outlook, it almost yeah. goes without saying that it, it, <laughs> it, it looks kind of bullish for prices, right? Especially <laughs> when you remove the buffer of, um, of uh, nation state uh, strategic petroleum reserves uh, from the mm. equation. Like anytime that we hand over market power to OPEC plus, prices go up. Now, how the underlying equities in this space will perform or whether you should trade the commodities or you know, like this is this is for each individual to decide in the context of their own portfolio allocation decisions. But it's very difficult, you know, absent a total economic lapse, um, there's a lot more bullish signs for primary energy in, the, in a three to five year time horizon than there are sort of uh, headwinds, at least as we sit here today. Speaking of uh, of OPEC plus, Thunberg, um, I actually read an interesting article in the Financial Times today. Uh, it, it doesn't happen that often, but uh, they, they wrote today that Indonesia is pondering whether they should try and sort of form an Battery. OPEC plus yeah. <laughs> in, in the electric uh, vehicle yeah. space, so to speak. What do you make of that story? I, I read the same story and it leaps off the page, you know. Um, the, the story, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but the story is um, that they're thinking about um, collaborating with other countries that produce critical materials that go into the battery supply chain. And, uh, you know, it makes sense. In the Western world, we have, because of NIMBYism, outsourced the dirty business of mining for nickel and copper and cobalt and lithium and uh, all the things that are needed, with the exception, of course, of Australia, which is um, an interesting topic on its own. But by and large, it's places like Peru and Chile, Indonesia, um, that have these resources and have a political construct in which developing those resources is possible. Um, We wrote a piece (laughs) about this lithium deposit that was discovered in Maine. And um, you can imagine where this piece is going, um, where this this amazing deposit of very high value lithium uh, is situated something like five or six miles from a really nice ski resort in, in Maine. <laughs> and you can imagine the piece is called uh, Transition to Nowhere. We published it on September 20th. Um, that mine is never getting permitted and will never be operational. And I can assure you that if you and I went on a recon mission to the parking lot of the ski resort, we would find many, many electric vehicles you know, plugged in uh, and being charged because the... Um, the, the relatively wealthy skiers, at least on a global scale, are doing their part for the environment. And um, and as the crow flies, less than 10 miles away sits a um, incredible lithium deposit that will remain in the ground uh, forever thus. 
Yeah. <laughs> Short Tesla, long lithium. Um, <laughs> kidding aside, uh, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience. We've received a bunch of questions, but I'll pick a few here. Uh, we have a question on YouTube. Um, a guy called Milson asked you uh, for the prospects for US production of crude oil and natural gas to increase if the Republicans take the House and the Senate in the midterms. Uh, I think the prospects for natural gas look a little better than oil. Um, if you pushed me today, um, uh, the um, the oil field in particular um, is is you know dealing with this drilled but uncompleted well situation where the companies that emerge from the bankruptcy proceedings after the negative oil price and and the COVID shutdowns um, are far more focused on producing cash. Um, Whereas um, in natural gas, you know, the industry was in the doldrums for so long that they have become um, really, really efficient and they can make uh, significant profits at three and four and five dollars per million BTU after many, many years of sub two dollars per million BTU natural gas in the US. Um, and so um, the capacity to uh, increase production of natural gas uh, is there. Uh, the, the gating function with natural gas, of course, is pipelines. And um, this is the weakness that uh, environmental groups are attacking with significant um, vigor, and this is a, a subject of a future piece that we have tentatively titled um, Pipe Dreams. Um, uh, projects like the Mountain Valley Pass Pipeline are stuck in legal limbo. Um, and, and this is why, of course, as we said earlier, that natural gas traded for negative uh, in Western Texas at the Waha Hub. Um, but uh, by and large, if, if you pushed us, um, correcting for everything, natural gas, bullish, uh, difficult to see how the US substantially increases its oil production from here. Um, given some of the challenges in the shale patch. I think we've received more than 10 questions on Freeport LNG. So let's uh, spend a minute or two on that topic. Um, uh, we obviously referred to the um, producer uh, Freeport LNG, um, which was hit by this uh, fire in its uh, Texas plant um, earlier this year. But they expect to be up back and running by November, uh, late November, right? As far as I'm concerned, at least uh, from the most recent headlines. What do you make of that story? Will it uh, carry repercussions for the natural gas price globally? Uh, it will certainly um, put a bid under U.S. natural gas in general, depending on regions and pipeline interconnectivity, uh, and will uh, serve to dampen uh, price of natural gas uh, in the export market, which is an unabashedly good thing, um, and, um, and we should hope for it. And so um, we shall see again, um, the, this is, the natural gas industry, especially in the US, um, has been suffering under sub $2 per million BTU for the better part of a decade. You know, with the shale revolution, they literally couldn't give it away. And so um, these types of prices, even at six and $7 per million BTU, let alone the 20 to $30 uh, LNG on offer, or as, as you and I know at the peak, I mean, it touched $100. It's just crazy numbers for several days. Um, but it bounced between ninety and one hundred dollars from BTU. At these types of prices, these are sort of legitimately windfall profit type pro uh, um, for uh, for companies that have been um, brutally become more efficient because of two two dollars or less uh, natural gas for the better period of the decade. Companies like EQT and SWN, um, well, however their stocks do, we can't predict, but they will certainly be minting money at these prices, and the. Um, the reopening of the Freeport LNG export facility, uh, which I think is probably more like early December, but could be late November, um, um, would certainly be bullish for the price of natural gas. Having said that, there's always the political risk that an export ban or an export capering 
um, comes into play as the um, increase in home heating costs in the U.S. begins to bite. Um, let's not forget, just a year ago, we were in that $2 per million BTU range. So six to eight now is a three to 400% increase. And, um, uh, you know, it might seem cheap compared to Europe, but it's expensive compared to the last bill the marginal voter in the U.S. paid. And, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren stands ready uh, with her partner in crime, Bernie Sanders, um, to stir up some trouble in, in the Senate and perhaps uh, win a few political points by banning exports. And so there's a very um, uh, interesting tug of war going on uh, between our desire to help um, our geopolitical allies while maintaining domestic tranquility. Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion that we will have to dig into another time. Uh, I want to to sum up a bit here uh, before we uh, leave you, Doomberg. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, to really understand the price moves that we've seen in the northeastern parts of the US in terms of diesel, you need to understand the underlying logistics. And it's basically the same when we look at the drop in the natural gas price in Europe. One thing is the warm weather, but another thing is the logistics. So I guess the safe conclusion here is to, um, to state to the audience today that uh, to be fully aware of the price moves in commodity space, you need to fully understand the underlying logistics. Uh, and I have to say, no one's uh, better at unpacking exactly those logistics than you. So thank you very much for joining us today. Andreas, it's been fantastic. And I look forward to uh, doing this again. Uh, anytime uh, you, you want us on, just give me a DM like you did and I'm happy to jump on. Thank you very much for that, Dunberg. And um, as you maybe know, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the show with a meme. Uh, and I've actually stolen the meme from your feet today because um, it is a meme that basically builds upon a meme that I tweeted yesterday. I've made the meme on the left-hand side of this uh, uh, double <laughs> meme, uh, but I don't know whether it was you or someone else who added uh, the, the nuclear yeah. part of this meme. But uh, I mean, it's just so telling us that. It is. Yeah, I, I retweeted from uh, the account that did it, and uh, it was a brilliant addition. And, and you know one of the great things about Twitter is um, Twitter's got a lot of toxicity, as we were joking about before we came on the air. But also, it's just sort of raw the raw brilliance and creativity of of a distributed network of intelligent people makes it worth it. Makes it worth staying on Twitter. And um, that meme is really fantastic one to go out on because it really does. You know, for all our talk about fossil fuels, there's a giant obvious answer waiting for us right there, and it's nuclear power. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely spot on. Thank you once again for joining us and thank you out there for tuning in. We will be back tomorrow with more in the Real Vision Daily Briefing. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best brightest and biggest names in finance.